This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture reading for this morning is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. This is found on page 1018 in the Bibles in your pews. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11. through 11. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. Let's uh, pray together. Lord, we come to you in the mighty name of Jesus because of his finished work and the gift of grace you have made known to us through him. God, this morning I ask as we open your word together, would you grant us a spirit of revelation, wisdom? God, would you fill us with the knowledge of your will? And would you do what Peter intends for these words to do in our own hearts this morning? By way of reminder of who we are, would you stir us up? God, I ask Holy Spirit, come and Stir our hearts this morning toward greater obedience, greater conformity to Christ-likeness, greater alignment with his will, his way, his desires. God, would you be pleased this morning to come and meet with us for your glory and in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So we're in our second week uh, looking at the epistle of 2 Peter. It's one of those uh, small books near the end of the New Testament, kind of like one of those little towns in the middle of Missouri. If you blink when you're driving through, you're going to miss it. Uh, But it's highly important and really, really meaningful for us, particularly where I think we find ourselves in our life in the Western church And so I want to jump right in. We'll get a little review on where we were last week and then look at what uh, the rest of uh, 1 Peter 1 has to say to us this morning. So the epistle of 2 Peter uh, was written. Here's the purpose that the 
apostle Peter wrote the letter is to uh, strengthen the church in the face of deception and the threat of false teaching, right? So there's these false teachers who have emerged from within the community that Peter is writing to, and he is writing to the church to strengthen them to stay steadfast in the truth of Christ in the face of false teaching. The letter gives us a specific understanding of how the apostles sought to strengthen the church when they're facing such demonic deception. This is important for us in our current cultural moment, I think, as we seek to grow in maturity as the people of God and remain steadfast. So like Peter's community, I think we are finding ourselves in the midst of a moment where there is an increase of false teaching among the church. And uh, what we're seeking to look at is how does the apostle set about strengthening and uh, building up the church to remain steadfast, holding fast to the foundation of Christ. Letter B, we find ourselves in a similar moment, experiencing the reality of false teaching. And like I said last week, oftentimes we could uh, line up the two fronts on which the, the devil will seek to tear the church of Jesus Christ apart from its true foundation. One would be persecution. One would be demonic deception or false teaching. Uh, So we find ourselves in a similar place, witnessing a great falling away in our contemporary moment as people in the church are deconstructing and abandoning their faith in Christ at uh, a pretty rapid clip. And although it looks and sounds different than it did in Peter's day, in his context, like what the teachers are actually teaching, uh, what we're going to find here in the next couple weeks is there's actually nothing new under the sun, right? There's absolutely nothing that is facing us in our moment that isn't as old as the first temptation all the way back in the garden. When, the, when, the, when Satan came to Eve and he said things like, did God really say that? Right? That's all deceptive teaching is clouded in the same spirit that goes all the way back, even though its context might be slightly different and the way that it gets expressed is slightly different. It all finds its source in a very similar place. Letter C, we looked at this last week. It is really important for us to remember that the primary strategy that the New Testament writers take when looking at false teaching or looking at strengthening the church is to actually build up the people of God. The the primary strategy that they look at for combating false teaching isn't first looking at the world outside and going, look at how bad the culture is or something like that. They look right at the heart of the church and they say, remember who you are and live in accordance with what God has called you to, orienting all of our efforts and all of our labors to shining a light on the uh, the truth of Christ and reminding people in the truth of the gospel. Letter D, Peter begins the letter by reminding them of who they were and who they are in Christ reminding us of glorious and precious promises that have been given in the gospel, right? We saw last week these five truths that Peter uh, labors to sow into the church yet again. Remember who you are. Remember these things are true about you 
before he goes on to look at how the false teachers are teaching or exhorting them to walk in holiness, he first reminds them, these are the truths that are secure for you in Christ Jesus. Now, these are meant to stir them up to respond as they engage these truths once again. Look at these two verses from 2 Peter, showing that Peter's understanding of declaring the truth is always intended to produce something in people, right? We're not, we're not just taking in the truth and checking off boxes and passing a test. The reality of the truth of who we are in Christ Jesus always produces something. And Peter is really clear of this. He, he declares it in the end of 1 Peter 1. He says, I'm reminding you of these things Though you already know them and you're established in the truth, I think it is good and right and necessary for me to continue to remind you of these things over and over and over again by way of stirring you up to respond to them. That's what he's saying here. And then at the end of the letter, he says this in chapter 3, verse 1. This is the second letter I'm writing to you. In both of the letters that I've written to you, my desire has been to stir you up, stir up your minds by way of remembrance so that you might respond. I'll let you reorient yourself to those five truths we looked at last week. But letter F, as we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, the starting place of every exhortation to holiness or warning against deception is always rooted in the reality of what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, right? So if you weren't here last week or you forgot, go back and listen to that one because it is the source for all of the exhortation that's about to come, right? The, the normative way of the New Testament is this. This is what God has done in Christ. He's given you grace, He saved you when you could not save yourself. He extended to you his kindness and his saving mercy out of the sheer goodness of his own heart, not because of anything you did or you earned or you merited. That is a gift given to you. Now, live as you are. The exhortation is be who you are in Christ. And that's the normative standard of exhortation in the New Testament. So what we're going to look at this morning is really the two things that Peter does coming out of these truths as he's reminded them of who they are, as he's shaped their reality in Christ yet again, he does two things. First, he exhorts them to work toward pursuing holiness. He exhorts them. He tells them, make efforts to go after some things. Then he begins to tell them what the outcome of that will be. Those are the two realities we're going to look at this morning. So Roman numeral two, exhorted to holiness. The next reality of Peter's strategy to strengthen the church against waves of deception, after reminding them of who they are, is to exhort them to live in accordance with who they are, to be who they are. One reality we see throughout the whole scripture is that being reminded of the truth of who we are in Christ, like I said, always produces something as we seek to respond to his truth in faith. I want you to take your eyes and look back into the the text here, 
Look at verse 5 in 2 Peter. The, the, the author here begins with the, uh, the, um, the connection for this reason, right? This is really important. What's he just told us? All the things that are true in Christ Jesus. Now he's saying, if these things are true, be about something, right? So he declares that it's for this reason, for the very reason of being called into the family of God, of being saved by grace through faith, of being made, brought up into communion with the life of God. These things provide the foundation for what he's about to exhort us to. So in other words, it's precisely because of these truths that we are to take up effort to walk in holy living before the Lord. The sum of the exhortation is precisely because we've been given the grace of God in Christ, we should, and here's the sum of the exhortation. It's the next set of words in verse five. Make every effort. Take those words, underline them in your Bible. If you're using a pew Bible, you can underline it in that Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, take that Bible with you. It's your gift from us. The exhortation that Peter is giving is he is going to enlist your intentional, focused, vigorous, active pursuit of holiness. Make every effort, not sit around and hope it happens. Or maybe down the road, you'll just fall your way into some of these things. He says, friends, if these glorious things are true of you, if this is what God has done, make every effort to walk in light of that. Make every effort. Look at the top of page two. A lot of believers struggle to make sense of the relationship between the free gift of God's grace and the reality of human effort in pursuing holiness. However, throughout scripture, these realities are never, ever separate from one another. They're never separated from each other. You cannot separate God's radical, scandalous, free gift of grace in Christ Jesus from a call to pursue holiness. Those things are like two sides of one coin. You cannot tear them asunder from one another. And if you highlight one at the expense of the other, it is equally detrimental on both sides, right? So if you highlight running after uh, holiness, but you do not root it in the free gift of God's grace, what you have is a, a sense of legalism and my striving to attain favor before God on accordance of my own works, which is remarkably detrimental. But if you just live as a free grace person and you never ever set yourself out to pursue a spirit of obedience and follow the Lord in holiness, you get this licentious way of passively relating to the grace of God, which is absolutely destructive. It is equally as destructive, right? So we think the works-based righteousness one is the destructive one, and the other one, maybe we can like tend towards that side. 
but they are equally as destructive before the Lord. They absolutely are. We have to hold them together. Look at letter F. God's active power at work in the life of a Christian manifests itself through our response to his word in a spirit of obedience and humble faith. So what we're going to see here in a little bit is how do you know God's word is at work in you? It manifests itself by seeking to walk toward him with a spirit of obedience and and humble faith. That's how you know the grace of God has been made known on you. Here in a little while, we're going to see Peter says, by the very means of pursuing these things, demonstrate your calling. Demonstrate that God's called you. Actually, make that seen and evidenced. uh, Show forth that God has called you in these ways. I love the author Dallas Willard famously stated it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. Right? Like a lot of times we go, well, this is the grace of God. That means I don't do anything. Grace is actually not opposed to effort at all. Grace is opposed to earning. Grace is about the disposition I have as I'm seeking to follow God, not about pursuing holiness. That is really clear. Letter G, Peter calls believers to zealously, intentionally, consciously, vigorously, Exert your effort towards something. He calls them to pursue a series of characteristics that embody a growing maturity in Christ-likeness. Okay, so let me just give you, before we walk into these, how you do this really quickly. This is like the application at the beginning. Okay? I'm, I'm undoing the normative pattern. How you do this. Let me give you four, four really quick steps How do you pursue these things? Because he goes, make every effort. So what effort do I need to put into this? How do I actually run after these things? And then we're going to talk about what he's telling us to put our effort toward. Number one, do this prayerfully. What I mean is this should fill your conversation material with the Lord, right? You don't pursue holiness or pursue uh, supplementing your faith with these realities if you never talk to the Lord about it. Ask him what that looks like in your life and ask him for the grace to step toward that more consistently in your life. Talk to him about it, right? So when we get to some of these things like self-control, start asking the Lord, what does self-control look like for me? Where are you asking me to walk in a spirit of self-control? God, help me. Help me walk with self-control here, right? So prayerfully do it. Number two, thoughtfully. Spend time actually thinking about these realities in the boots on the ground parts of your life. Where you give your time, energy, think through real scenarios, right? So if I'm Trying to supplement self-control. You guys are going to get this one a lot this morning, I think. If I'm trying to supplement that into my life, and I feel like as I'm praying, the Lord's highlighting like my eating or something, I need to think through scenarios in which this happens and thoughtfully go, in this place, this is how I'm going to respond. 
This is what it looks like for me to put that into practice in the, on the ground here. This is absolutely important. So we do it prayerfully. We do it thoughtfully. We do it relationally. What I mean is this. There's, there's two ways that I, I, I mean this. Number one, bring other people into this with you. As the Lord highlights things to you and you're trying to take steps toward it, tell people, hey, I'm trying to supplement my faith with uh, brotherly kindness in this place. It's really hard for me to do here. Would you just like ask me how I'm doing in that for accountability, right? So do it relationally. Do it uh, that way relationally and then also ask other people to speak into the places where you're not very good at those things. Have the humility and the grace to go, would you tell me how I can supplement this into my life? I want to grow in these ways, prayerfully, thoughtfully, relationally, and then lastly, I would just say humbly, meaning knowing that you are weak and it's going to take time and the grace of God as you grow. All right, letter H. So what is Peter actually telling us to do, right? Make every effort. To do what? The word he uses next is to supplement. And it's really important. It's a really important exhortation, right? He gives this string of characteristics that move from one to the next, but the word here is really important. He doesn't say, add this thing to this thing, right? That might give you the sense that I go after one and when I've accomplished faith enough, I can move to virtue. And then when I get virtue enough, I can move on to uh, knowledge. And then when I get knowledge, I can move on to the next one. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's not saying move from one to the next and check it off and get it. He is talking about each of the concepts or each of these ideas should be pursued and supplied to the others. Think about it this way, like voices in a choir, right? You're adding parts into a, into a choral arrangement and situating them together, right? You've got one note and then you add a harmony note and then you add another harmony note and you bring them together and supplement the choral arrangement by multiple notes. Or you could think about it this way, like a ingredients in a dish, right? You don't go, uh, when you've attained to the salt in this dish, add cumin, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying all of these go into the stew that is maturity and holiness in, in, the, in the love of God. So pursue these things and supplement them into your pursuit before him. So what are they? All right, we're just going to walk through them. Ready? Rapid fire. Fire hose. Faith. Peter begins with the idea of faith, right? So he's already presuming, we saw from verse one of chapter one, that you've been given faith, right? So you have it. 
Remember we saw last week, you were given faith as a gift by God of no merit of your own. He took it and he deposited it to you. So he's going, okay, you already have faith. Here you go. This is the starting place of any mature believer in Christ, anyone who is seeking to pursue him in holiness and in maturity, you have faith. So to your faith, we're going to supplement some ingredients, right? We've been granted this. He's been given it to us by by not our own merit, by his grace alone. It's the starting place for every pursuit of holiness, right? So he says, take your faith and supplement to it virtue, right? So to our faith, Peter invites us to strive to add to it, to supplement it with virtue. The word here could be a general open term for like a moral excellence, right? Like a character, uh, a a godly character before the Lord. There's a lot of debate about what Peter actually means, right? Like there's traditional concepts of virtue, like justice and temperance and fortitude. uh, Or does he mean something more specific? Now in the context, I think that he is simply stating, strive to walk in a Christ-like manner in our lives, Look at earlier. I want you to move your eyes up to verse three at the end. God, by his divine power, he granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, right? So he's given you all the strength you need to pursue these things already. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Now, that word excellence, just circle it. It's the same word that gets translated virtue here in verse five. So really what Peter is saying is Jesus called you to partake of his own glory, meaning relationship with him, and to bear his likeness in the world by being conformed to his image. That's what he's saying. So he's saying strive to be conformed to Christ's nature in your life. And you ask the question like, how do I do that, right? You fill your mind with the word of God. He's showed us his character and his nature. So he's saying the first thing that we seek to do is in our lives, take our faith and then make every effort in the places of your life to walk in a Christ-like manner, imitating the nature of Jesus in this world. So strive to add this moral excellence, this character that's upright and godly before the Lord. To that, add knowledge, right? Knowledge, one of the glorious realities of walking in relationship with God is we're invited into communion with him, right? This isn't talking about book knowledge. He's not talking about get some doctrine books and like sit next to a fire in your armchair and smoke a pipe and learn doctrine. Now that's awesome and you should do that, but all of those things, actually. Um, But he's talking about relational knowledge. In the Bible, every part of knowledge has to do with relationship and experience that comes by the spirit of revelation, right? So he's saying you've been welcomed into life with God. Earlier, remember what's one of the realities that's true of us. We've been made to be partakers of the divine nature, which simply means we've been welcomed into communion with God himself, 
right? We, we now have been communicated to and we participate in God's life. Now, grow in relationship with him is what he's saying. Take your faith, make effort to try to walk in a Christ-like manner in this world. And in that regard, make every effort to grow and cultivate the knowledge of God in your life. Cultivate knowing him more. Cultivate living in communion with him more. Believers must orient their lives around growing in the knowledge of God through relating to him in his word, right? So we've talked about this a lot as a family, right? Take the word of God, mull it over, speak it back to him, thank him for his truths, ask him to reveal himself to you. That is how you grow in the knowledge of God. And Peter is saying here, make every effort to grow in the knowledge of God. Don't let it be a passive thing, right? Don't let it just happen to you. You have been purchased and welcomed into his family. You've been made a partaker of the divine nature. Now, make every effort to grow in relationship with him, the knowledge of who he is. Then he moves from knowledge to self-control. This speaks of an intentional and personal restraint over our own emotions and our own desires. Each of us in our sinful nature is unbelievably preoccupied with ourselves and our own passions, right? To exercise self-control is to train, or you could use the word discipline, our will to choose more consistently, operating with constraint with regards to our passions, right? So this presupposes that you have been given a will, right, to make choices. God has given you a faculty by which you can make decisions and no one else can make them for you. Hey, here's a side note. We'll get to this when we get to the false teachings, potentially, but it is part of of our world right now. One of the lies that is finding its way into the church from the world right now is that the thoughts and feelings of someone else are your responsibility, right? This is counter to the way that God has designed humans, right? Your thoughts and feelings are your responsibility. That's main and plain. That is one of the dignities of what it means to be made in the image of God. You've been given a will. Every situation that you walk into, you have the capacity to determine or choose or decide how am I going to relate to this? How am I internally going to relate to this, right? So one of the problems that we find in our lives is we do not like to use our will to say no to the things that we want, right? It's called being weak-willed. Here's another side note. A lot of times we talk about strong-willed children. Strong-willed children are actually weak-willed children, okay? 
they do not have the capacity to say no to themselves. We're often, when we say we're strong-willed, really weak-willed. A strong will has the ability to constrain my own wants, desires, emotions, all my passions, and orient my actions toward what God has called me to submit my life to. That is a strong will, right? So self-control is needed here. Look at number one. The need for self-control is often one of the primary places that false teaching counteracts the teaching of the scripture. And again, we'll go back all the way to the garden, right? All the way back. Why should you submit to God? Why would you not get everything you want? Right? The tree's there for the tasting, the touching, the consuming. It looks good. Why don't you reach out and have it and you can have everything that you want? Well, God told me not to. Well, maybe he shouldn't have. Self-control is a remarkably important thing as believers that we are, by God's grace, called to pursue and supplement. Look at number two here. Jesus is unashamed of this. He calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him in the way of self-denial promising that the one who desires to find life must actually lose it, right? So the way of fulfillment and wholeness and satisfaction in the kingdom of God is not by self-actualization. It's by laying down your life, following in the footsteps of the one who laid down his One of the greatest affronts to Christian teaching in our day is the false gospel of self-fulfillment, self-expression that fills both the world around us and is finding its way into the church. Many in our day believe that to be truly fulfilled requires that everything that stands in the way of my own personal expression, my own personal fulfillment, my own personal health, whatever, must be done away with, pushed aside. Look at number four on the top of page three. We learn to practice self-control as our wills are trained and empowered by the Holy Spirit to restrain various impulses of self-expression and self-love. This is done in a lot of different places. It's done in the battlefield of your mind, right? What, What does God call us to? Be renewed in your mind. That requires self-control, right? Because I want to be conformed to the ways of thinking that the world tells me about, that are easy, that prop me up and make me feel a lot better in the moment, right? God says, practice self-control there. Be renewed in your mind. Don't let your mind run down that path of, of unrenewed thinking, Right? We do this in our emotions, right? What we feel, our indulgences, our passions. We do this in the body, physical appetites, our sexuality, right? There's all sorts of areas that the Lord has asked us to submit our lives to His ways that require that we supplement into this mixture by effort self control. Okay, steadfastness. 
There's a great need then for believers to experience the gift of endurance as we seek to walk in obedience to the Lord. There is a difficulty and a hardship, right? Jesus doesn't shy away from this. End of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a narrow way. This is a difficult way. This is hard and costly and it's narrow and it requires a faithful and steadfast endurance over the long haul. This has to be given to us by God's grace and we set our hearts to walk in it. Both are needed, right? And I have scriptures for both. Psalm 57, the psalmist declares to the Lord, my heart is steadfast. So I'm facing this difficulty. I'm walking through this hardship. I'm going to stand steadfast here, God. And we see in the New Testament, Paul prays for the church to be taken into and given the steadfastness of Jesus. Second Thessalonians chapter three, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Letter N, godliness. So he moves on. We're just moving from one to the next. The word here speaks generally of what the ancient world understood as the concept of piety. We've, we've lost this concept in the modern world. It simply means a life that is ordered around proper reverence to God's authority and then fulfilling the necessary duties to that. Right? Piety just means I'm ordered up under what authority structures are over me and I fulfill uh, whatever quote-unquote duty is necessary to that. Right? So that's what uh, Peter's getting at here. This concept is closely related to what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. Right? The fear of the Lord is simply understanding God's in charge of everything His authority is over everything. He gets to decide what's good and right and true and whole. He alone has has the ability and the right to define that. He evaluates and sees everything, right? So it's not just that he's in charge, it's that he cares. He actually cares. He cares about his people and the people of the world, he looks on and sees and evaluates in accordance with his glorious goodness. And then it also says one day that we will stand before him and give an account for our lives in accordance with this evaluation. Okay, so if those realities become true in your life, what this does is it makes you want to be pleasing to him, right? If God's in charge, He sees all things. His evaluation is all that matters. And one day I will stand before him and give an account for that. I go, Lord, I want to be pleasing to you. I want my life to matter. I want want to be lined up with what you say is good and right and whole. It produces a sober-minded desire to please him that we might live in accordance with what he desires and not be ashamed on the day when we stand before him. Letter O, he moves on to brotherly affection. To these qualities, Christians are called to supply a type of familial affection within the family of God. We've been called into a new family through Christ and we're now brothers and sisters joined together in him. Because of this, there is a type of affection that should mark God's spiritual family, right? A type of solidarity or a type of 
commitment to one another that far surpasses friendship or camaraderie, right? There is a committedness among the family of God that we need to, let's just be real, make every effort to have together, right? Are you all better at it than I am? To stand with one another in a family-like affection when we're bumping into each other, bruising each other, missing each other's expectations. I want one thing from you. You give a different thing to me. That creates this tension point. How do we walk together? We make every effort to walk with brotherly affection. That means we're quick to come together for reconciliation. It means we're slow to speak about one another when we're not in each other's presence. We don't gossip about each other. We don't slander about each other. We, we, we're, we seek to have toward one another a gracious disposition that's not judgmental and seeking to keep short accounts, right? We have to make efforts to do that. That doesn't just happen. Y'all have all lived in a family, right? Who are the hardest people to believe the best about? The people that you bump into in the hallway, in your home, right? It's the hardest people to be gracious toward and to continue to stand in a place of believing good things about them, right? How much more in the family of God, right? We need to practice together and make effort to be affectionate with one another. And lastly, he tells us to put supplement love. This is the quality outlined by Peter that is the summit of Christian virtue. It's important that the list begins with faith and then ends in love. To walk in love is the ultimate mark of the Christian community. We're called to be transformed into the likeness of Christ and demonstrate our fidelity to him by expressing his love in the world. Now, this is really important. The portrait of love that Peter is talking about is not some kind of sentimentalism. It's not even talking about how others feel about you when you're with them. Love is defined by God's nature. And he gets to tell us what it looks like and how we practice it, right? So we see in 1 Corinthians 13, when we're called to make every effort to love, it's things like this. Are we patient with one another? Are we kind? Do we envy? Do we boast? Do we have arrogance? Are we rude? Do we insist on our own way? Are we irritable, resentful? When someone else does something wrong and they're found out, do we rejoice at it? Or do we rejoice with the truth? Do we bear with one another? Do we believe one another? Do we hope for all things with one another? Do we endure all things with one another? That is the biblical definition of love, right? So he calls us, make every effort to press towards those things. All right, look at the top of page four. So Peter gives this list of qualities and he again exhorts the church to diligently, diligently run after these things. Again, there is not a version of Christianity that does not 
engage the whole of our person in pursuing relationship with God and conformity to his character. He's already provided all the power that we need to walk in his ways. We saw that last week. And now he calls us to exert our energy toward growing and maturing in conformity with his ways. And then what he does for the rest of this section is simply outlines, these are the outcomes of this. This is what happens as we receive the word, are stirred up in reminder, and we lay hold of or seek to lay hold of the grace of God in Christ, we, these are what the outcomes will be. Number one, you'll be fruitful. You want to be fruitful. You want your life to matter. You want there to be uh, an abundance within your life. We see how. He says, if you have these qualities, you will not be ineffective. You will not be unfruitful. Then he talks about this confirms the reality that we've been called. It demonstrates our calling. He then goes, hey, if we pursue these things, we will never fall. And he doesn't mean we won't sin. He doesn't mean that we won't be weak and broken and stumble along the way. He's saying if we lay hold of these things or pursue these things, we will not ultimately fall away from the Lord. We will stay with him in, in, in perseverance through our lives. And lastly, he says we'll be welcomed into the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. So this morning, here's, here's, here's the charge that I want for us. I want us to look at these things and go, God, with your grace, because this is what it looks like to pursue them. It looks like asking God to shine his light in these areas, saying yes to them, and then all along the road, when you stumble, when you fall short, you repent for it, you turn back to him, receive his grace afresh, and then press on again. That's what it looks like. And I want us to this morning just say yes to that before the Lord. Like we want to supplement our faith as a people with these realities. We want to grow. We want to make every effort to pursue all that you have accomplished in Christ Jesus for us. Amen. Would you stand as we close?